chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Why do people get married? Is it for romance? Is it for practicality? Is it because it's the thing to do? That's what this play deals with and some of what we'll be talking about today. Janelle, why do you think people get married? Uh, You know, Eliza, I think my uh, response to that would take too long and be about, you know, the impact of Judeo-Christian moral structures on the West and the institution of marriage as a legally binding contract that helps the government keep track of our bio data. So... I'm very romantic when you get down to it, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I feel like perhaps the reasonings have changed over the years, but the conversation (laughs) hasn't. And I bet our guest today is going to have a lot to say about that. Uh, Welcome back, Jeff Gann, to the show. Hi, hello. I'm so I'm so glad to be back. Hey, Jeff. We're so happy to have you. Marriage. I had to do it. it I'm I'm just going to do it once and be over. So. I'm so glad you did. Honestly, I have to say, today's movie, today's play, is one of my favorites. I love it. Every time I watch this movie, I'm just so delighted. Oh no, Eliza. I don't know if I share that opinion. That's... That's fine. I want to hear. I want to hear how you actually feel. Yeah, I love Ernest. I'm a huge Ernest fan, um, and I'm so excited. Thank oh. you so much for inviting me to discuss this. Oh, so, oh did, I, did I drop the name already? Oh, we can just edit that out, right? No, no, no. That's fine. You can totally drop the name. <laughs> that, it's the important Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, as Jeff let slip very perfectly, actually, because this name has so much importance to the conversation that we're having today. Uh, the film this week is our Patreon picked the importance of being earnest. I just one of my favorite things about Ernest um, is the I, I've only read about this on Wikipedia. I don't know anything else about it besides that I know that this is a pun that works in English. That Ernest is a person's name and it's also like an adjective, um, and that in other translations, translators have this like question of like, what are they going to do? Are they going to mm. just keep it as like Ernest? Like sometimes it's Ernesto that makes sense, but like. I think in French, someone translated it as like Constance or something like that, you mm. know? And I think that that is really, that appeals to me a lot. Like what is earnest in your culture? Um, That's is... so interesting. I hadn't even thought about translations, but yeah, mm. the, the I mean, I would imagine a lot of this doesn't translate one-to-one <laughs> in that same way. Cause this is yeah, a play that, yeah. that is so reliant on, on the manipulation of language. Janelle, why don't you tell us uh, what the play is about and then we can dive into that. Ahem. The Importance of Being Earnest, 2002. Two young gents have taken to bending the truth in order to put some excitement into their lives. Worthing, played by Colin Firth, has invented a brother, Ernest, whom he uses as an excuse to leave his dull life behind to visit Gwendolyn, played by Frances O'Connor. Montcrieff, played by Rupert Everett, decides to take the name Ernest when visiting Worthing's young and beautiful ward, Cecily, played by Reese Witherspoon. Things start to go awry when they end up together in the country, and their deceptions are discovered. Well, my friends, we have already started the very rich conversation uh, that addresses this question, but I'll pose it to you anyway. That's what Google says the importance of being earnest is about, but what 
is it really about? Uh, okay. I'll, maybe I'll take the. I'll just go for it. I've been trying to. I've been rehearsing how to say this delicately, and I don't think there there is. <laughs> I approach every iteration of Ernest, every production, every reading of it. I guess there's only a couple of movies, but this movie as well. But the fundamental question, which is how gay is this going to be? <laughs> and that is the only metric that I have really for Ernest. I'm like, you're either on the side of the gay angels or you're not and you're failing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, then we have to so, volley back the question to you, Jeff. Like, is the 2002, where does the 2002 adaptation fall on, on the gay scale? Is it with the gay angels? I think it's a little complicated because I feel like it doesn't do what I want it to do, mm-hmm. which is to like hammer, be like, bun, like this, this word bun burying. So I think the play to answer your question is about bun burying, um, which mm-hmm. is this like term that I, I think it's algae, right. comes up with, it's like, Oh, mm-hmm. I have Bunbury in my life or whatever. Um, I have to give it my, my friend Bunbury. Uh, but that it's like bun, it's like bun, bun burying. <laughs> like it's not exactly it's a subtle and sex I joke, think that I always right? want for a production of Ernest, maybe it'd be bad if this happens or any iteration of it to like hammer into it and be like, we know what this sounds like. And yes, that is what we're talking about here. Bunburying to me is what makes this play, this text, like so queer. I was telling Janelle the last time that I saw a production of Ernest in a theater was at Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. And I, uh, a certain person that both Janelle and I know are mutual friends with, I had been dating and we were dating no more. Um, and it was the first play that we saw together. The two of us are men. We are gay men. Ooh, sorry. Outed. Uh, oh. um, <laughs> uh, and it was the first play that we saw together after we sort of broke up and decided that we would still want to be, you know, friends and friendly. And, um, I had a couple of drinks at Hill Country Barbecue, you know, over there as one does. Um, and we were in this theater and we were listening to this and every time they said the words bun burying, like, we'd crack up because we're like that's gay <laughs> you know it's just like funny it's like it's like it's like butt it's like butt it's like doing stuff in the butt um and no and it was like <laughs> thanks for clarifying silent. yeah i wasn't clear if everyone was on, <laughs> was on that um and also the, so beyond just the pun the sort of really crude pun there i think it's also you know the act of bunburying of pretending like you have a friend in the country or in the city mm-hmm. that allows you there's like this other persona that allows you to live the life that you really want to live, probably a very libertine life in an urban place where you're free of the sort of strictures and commitments of your family. Um, and you're, you know, in just the life that has been given to you, like you get to choose mm-hmm. a life through this device, which is bun burying. There's a real, there's a real importance of that sort of ability to, come up with a lie about where you're going to be and then have freedom Mm -hmm. to go do whatever the hell you want rather Mm -hmm. than what either your family or your society or whatever is expecting you to do. Um, That I think is not a subtle metaphor in the play. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that also, I think for people in the listening audience who aren't as well versed in theater history as the three of us are, it's also interesting the kind of meta text around this play Mm -hmm. is that it, it's original run was closed even though it was wildly popular after 86 performances in London because its author, Oscar Wilde, was arrested for homosexuality and was outed very publicly in some court proceedings by the mother of his lover. Uh, And actually, she even tried to disrupt the premiere of the show by giving him a bouquet of rotten vegetables, but she wasn't allowed backstage. 
So at any rate, there's an interesting sort of thing going on here, I think, where the like text of this play and its adaptations is about, yes, like carving out this sort of libertine urban existence for yourself that is very much a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the queer community. But then there's also this story of a very public and very violent outing that comes with it as well, which is sort of like the sweet and sour of it all. Yeah. And I think that like the sort of meta text of it too, to answer your question, Eliza, about like, is this thing gay enough? I mean, like part of me wants to be like, no, it wasn't doing it for me. But part of me also is like in casting Rupert, who is <laughs> yes. just like, I was trying to find like a good metaphor. And I was like, maybe he's like a white gay version of like Azalea Banks or something. He is just a complicated dude like for <laughs> like gay men for like white gay <laughs> men he um I, I i did not know a lot about him until i saw him in this and i was like oh my god he's so strikingly handsome and like what's his deal and like you just read his wikipedia page he's like a monarchist he's also like a former sex worker who's like very uh a very open and very forceful advocate for like sex workers in the uk and he takes like the radical separatist critique of same-sex marriage that like same that that we shouldn't be getting married and like nailing ourselves as, as people to this like heterosexual norm he says that he was trans as a child and like is was trans no more and thus on those grounds like opposes hormone replacement therapy for trans children although which is like i just like there's a lot going on with that man and he's like in this uh, playing straight which again i think for any time i there is a gay actor who plays straight i think there is like a delightful for me inversion no pun intended mm. of like casting norms oh, <laughs> and absolutely. i'm like really excited about so um i don't know i don't i have mixed feelings about this well, uh what i find but... interesting about that casting choice is that i feel like without knowing all of the sort of background about about his personal life mm -hmm. um that rupert everett has a very particular persona that he tends to play in movies mm -hmm. um and he's he's got a wide um range of things he's been in so obviously this isn't true for everything but he does he's been in a number of like rom-coms and things like that where he plays like the sassy gay friend but it's it's a very sort of upper crust kind of sassy gay friend you know he's very null very, coward yeah mm -hmm. yes he's very suave mm. and he's very you know smart and educated and you know but slips in all of these inappropriate jokes and that's the sort of character that he's played in a number of things and he s plays this character Algernon in exactly the same way he just happens to be a straight man in this and mm. I feel like that's not an accident right to have him play this sort of mm -hmm. foppish flamboyant you know overly confident character that is much how he plays several of his you know canonically gay characters to then have him play this canonically straight character, but in that sort of way, it it works with this sort of writing and with you know Oscar Wilde's characters that he's created. Yeah. So maybe the thing that I feel like isn't the way that the movie is sort of failing for me. Then it's oh my god, I can't, I'm about to say this. I think maybe it's Colin Firth. That's like maybe fair. it's like that. And this is uh, it's so funny because the sort of I mean spoiler, sorry. The the like wild twist at the end of the play is that these two friends are actually brothers. Um, which usually, in, in my ideal earnest, is like a way of explaining why they have so much sexual chemistry, which again is sort of like questionable. It's because they're like they're literal brothers, like they're blood related. I just feel like maybe Colin Firth is just not he. Like he's tries playing the straight man, literally straight. playing the straight man. You know? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot that I love about this movie, but I would agree with you that it is not gay enough for Oscar up. Wilde. <laughs> I think where it where it does accomplish the 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 gay enough elements are in its just sort of like over the top theatricality, 
which yeah, I, I think the, the movie does great. All of that uh, fantasy stuff. I feel like when I fabulous. watch it, I'm like, that's what Oscar Wilde would have wanted. You know, right? Mm-hmm. Like he would want Rupert Everett walking in in a full knight's, you know, armor with petals flying through the air. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I feel similarly about, oh, God, I'm just talking mad shit about people that I love, about Judy Dench <laughs> as Lady Bracknell in this, which is, like, one of the most iconic roles, I think, in, like, the Western comedy theater. Like, it just mm-hmm. truly is. And there's something about, I like, I maybe if it was, like, Maggie Smith or someone, there's, there's just something about, like, Judy Dench as, like, she is a diva, but she's not, like, a diva, you know what I mean? Mm, she doesn't have the camp quality. Oh, she, guys, I disagree with you so you much You think Judy Dench's camp in this? I don't know. Susan Sontag is turning over her in her grave. I don't know. I don't know about I, this. I think that she hits just the right note of completely serious deliveries of her lines to be the, like, to really emphasize how ridiculous all of her lines are, right? Because, like, Lady Bracknell as a character, everything she says is so insane, and I yeah, love the way that Judy Dench delivers them as if they are completely normal, reasonable things to say. And, like, Eliza, if I was directing a production of Ernest, that's exactly the direction I would give to my Lady Bracknell, but, like, mm-hmm. there's just something about the way that she does it, and she's doing it right. Like, that's, I think, she's doing the thing. But it's just not, it's just not there for me. I think maybe just even like a little note of her being like, she is like self-consciously being serious in this way. Or like Sontag mm. writes about like, you know, there needs to, the accidental camp, or the incidental camp is like the most satisfying. But also like, if you're going to be Lady Bracknell, like, you know that that's like how it should be played, you know? I don't mm-hmm. know. I, it's complicated, but ah, oh, man. I, um, I did, I found myself, uh, interested like very interested in this sort of like little edits and stuff that they put in the little additions mm-hmm. and i think that mm-hmm. g dent has a great and like juicy one at the end where they go to the book to see if colin firth's character's real name is Ernest. there's all this traffic about the name Ernest, right and then we see in the book like zoomed in it says that this like character he's like you're not your father and he's like my father's named Ernest." that then judy dent sees that that's a lie uh, mm-hmm. And then delivers the famous closing line of, of this play, which is like, you seem to be what is on the verge of being trifling or whatever, but like, no, I feel more than ever the importance of being earnest. Um, that was a kind of a fun little twist, but I just, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that the sort of like pre-Raphaelite Fantasia situations, I really dug <laughs> some of the performances. And also like, I got hung up on the period a lot. <laughs> I was like, what, when is this going? Yeah, um, it's it's supposed to be, of course, like it, in the actual play script, it says it is set in the present, which for Oscar Wilde is 1895. Mm-hmm. And there are things in this, in this production design that suggest the the late Victorian period, but uh, there are also also nineteen twenties. Yeah, there's some like very big nineteen twenties feelings going on. It's very early Edwardian feelings going on. They kind of picked. I would say let's let's just call what they're doing here the long nineteenth century. Let's just say that <laughs> they're just deciding that the end of the nineteenth century goes from eighteen eighty five to nineteen twenty five, and they're just going to live in that fantasia. <laughs> but they didn't do it hard enough. They should have gone harder no. with it. I mean, you know, I get normally so bogged down in the details of like, oh, these costumes aren't quite right for the period or things like that. But I Mm. think because this leans so hard into both the fantasy of it and the absurdity that I'm able to to hand wave that a little bit more. Because, again, like, yes, it's about a particular time period, but it's not 
actually about a specific time period and you know and all of the Mm -hmm. sort of social mores that they're having to follow when it comes to these you know the courting and whatever is so over the top that like it's not like you necessarily have to stick to the exact you know have everything be exactly like it's 1872 you know right like you don't have to pick Mm -hmm. a year and be like this is how it's happening because it is sort of satirizing a a whole you know a, a, a larger societal moment um, so I, I think I, mm-hmm. I am willing to let this movie get away with it a little more. But yes, it, it's not um, it's not perfect in its drama you know, there. There's something really interesting to to sort of talk about the sort of the specificity of the period and also Judy Dench's um, performance. I think that in the what I think of as the interrogation scene, which happens in the first mm-hmm. act, I believe, of the play, mm-hmm. where it's like there's this again this famous hilarious revelation that the main character was like found in a handbag and there's this famous line of just a handbag which what is the apocryphal thing about it it's like the most like read or there's it's like the most iterated like line reading in the english language or whatever a handbag <laughs> i felt like the politics i think of of wild satire really heavily in that in a way that i've never felt it really before because a lot of it is just sort of these non sequiturs of like, do you smoke? And he says, yes, I do smoke. And then Lady Bracknell says, well, it's great. That's good. Like, I think that every man should have a profession. Um, and it's sort of these, all these reversals <laughs> of like, what you would expect. Me too. Um, but there's this stuff about like, um, I don't know, like, are, are you educated? And he says, are you ignorant or are you like knowledgeable? Mm. He says, oh, I am ignorant. I must confess. And she says, well, I think that ignorance is beautiful. It's like an exotic fruit. Um, I think that everyone should be ignorant. I think, and thank God our education system doesn't educate people because otherwise it'd be like a revolution or something. And I was like, whoa, Oscar, like soul of a man under socialism. Like, I didn't know that you were coming out swinging this early. Um, and I felt that really heavily with Judy, I think because she was so serious, mm-hmm. but she wasn't serious in like quite the way that I was looking for, but I got to see something different that I don't normally see in this text, which is really exciting for me. Yeah. I love that scene, um, both in this movie and just in the play in general, because I think mm-hmm. that it sets up so much of what you need to understand about the expectations for marriage and relationships as they are Mm. in this play. Right. Like, and it's this understanding that the societal, you know, benchmarks that you have to be able to like check off in order to be an, you know, admirable match are completely arbitrary. And many of them are very stupid or very ridiculous. And to have this scene where these two people in very different ways are taking these ridiculous arbitrary questions so seriously i feel like just sets up everything you need to understand about the fact that like about how arbitrary the steps to marriage are for these characters Mm, that leads me to to recall my favorite line which is towards the end of the play when the kind of like marriages are coming together and uh both couples announce their uh, engagements to lady bracknell and she says uh something along the lines of like i don't know if there's something in the air of this here county but uh i do believe that the rates of engagements are higher than they ought to be based on the statistics that we've been provided as a society (laughs) which i i really appreciate it because on some level like you know i i don't know enough about queer history specifically in england at the time but i i have to imagine that the the kind of perspective that you would have on a kind of you know heterosexual marriage institution as a queer writer at that time must have been pretty uh, interesting probably dismissive i would i would think right the kind of like triviality of i am declaring that i am engaged to you now and Mm -hmm. we are making a pact 
and we are in love and everyone's going to know about it, which in many ways, if you think about it sort of from a detached, like if you try and detach yourself from social norms, which is very impossible, but let's try it. And you just think about this idea of making a sort of like legal agreement with someone as opposed to, you know, something like bun burying. Which one seems more romantic and more exciting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and the ways that especially the relationship between Algernon and Cecily come to be, I think really play into that, right? Because there's absolutely no reason from a romantic standpoint for these two people to decide to get married. They don't know anything about each other. They've both created their own ideas in their heads about what the other person is like. They meet for the mm-hmm. first time and they're like, yes, we're going to get married, obviously. And yes, uh, you know, in, in every engagement, you have to break up at least once. Otherwise, how could anyone take it seriously? <laughs> but I, it was so drawn to you that I, of course, had to, you know, end the breakup of the engagement immediately because I was so, you know, it's all the stuff that has nothing to do with the actual other person, but everyone just accepts it. And there's definitely some commentary there about these sort of, you know, performative steps that everyone goes through that if you're, you know, not a straight person who has an actual sexual desire to be part of this relationship must seem, you know, to be completely arbitrary and that like and then you have to do this and then you have to do this and that's just the next step it's not because you have an actual desire for it i think that like that brings me to something there's sort of a parallelism uh dramaturgically i feel between the the sort of skewering of oh god who is it dolan maybe who talks about like the marriage plot in like dance yes that's dolan um and so the sort of plot of like you know this is the way that the romance happens but also the plot as sort of a society right Mm -hmm. that we have to like entrap people (laughs) um (laughs) in these things and charitable about it but i think that there's a way that wild is like satirizing not only the aspirations of these characters but also the form of a play itself of like the sort of Mm -hmm. like domestic drama the sort of shavian situation the shaw sorry the shaw related situation (laughs) uh (laughs) use these pretentious adjectives here um where it's like you know so there's this this entire i'm trying to be intelligent about this but it's sort of hard Eh, Um, intelligence is overrated isn't that what lady (laughs) told us yeah great and be really ignorant about it instead uh, so it's like the way that like the the structure, the story of Algie and Cecily's relationship is like happening without Algie even being there, you know, <laughs> and she's like, oh, I broke up with you, but then I forgave you. It reminds me so much of like the sort of dramaturgy of the documents, the ending of the play where it's like all mm-hmm. these aborted endings over and over again. Um mm-hmm and like this sort of like crisis that like can't be resolved until like the very very last moment with the discovery that in fact like x is y that like miss prism or whoever was the servant who like put him in the thing and then she was actually the daughter he was actually the son of the whatever it's it's such an absurd level (laughs) but it is like a well-made it's still a well-made play Mm -hmm. inside of that sort Mm -hmm. of very 19th century uh dramaturgy right Mm -hmm. um it's just accelerated and um the time of it is like so compressed in these like really silly ways. Uh, so I feel like, and the, often these plays themselves, again, sort of the, to the Shaw thing, are like themselves moralizing uh, and trying to establish like a good or a socialist world or something like that. Um, so I feel like in, you can, in skewering the values of the characters, he's also skewering the tools that make those values, which in this time were sometimes plays, you know? Um, mm. And I find that to be really sexy. Uh, and I also like wordplay a lot. And I like bun burring because it's a silly pun. I, I, speaking of the wordplay in this play, one of the things that I, 
I I had always known about the the like queer to some text to others subtext um, of this play, but the thing that I didn't realize is that the word earnest itself at the time arguably it seems that historians kind of disagree about the value of this, but also it's very difficult to tell this sort of apocryphal history. But at any rate, mm. um, earnest may well have been a sort of indicator of queerness at the time. Oh. Apparently, oh. right. Like to, to say that someone is earnest was a way apparently in the it's Victorian, like, is indi- he, you know, it, no, literally that was their equivalent would be, is he <laughs> is earnest? He, is, he a, is he, is he family? Like we say that all the time. Uh, is he so is he so that's what the victor apparently that's what victorian gay men would say to each other is is he earnest and there are poems supposedly that that indicate that that was the the thing so theoretically audiences that saw this if there were gay men in the audience or queer men in the audience they would be like laughing their fucking heads off to hear these women be like i just love the name earnest there's something about it (laughs) just so trustworthy and so like they're like oh lady i got news for you um and the best part about that is that like in the play if you're just reading it straight pun absolutely intended then the idea of a man's name being earnest sort of works on a heterosexual level right because you're like oh yes great this is a heterosexual man who's not going to cheat on you he's going to be honest blah 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 but then if you're reading it from the queer perspective then it's like oh no the thing about his like earnestness that's so great is that he's gay, right? That like <laughs> the being earnest is not being gonna gay. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it's so there's so many layers to that joke. Like, god damn it. Oscar Wilde, man, a famous uh, comedian for many reasons. Right. Well, and yeah, the way that the ahead. women talk about that works time and time again too, because as I've said, like these aren't particularly sexualized relationships, except in the women's minds when they come up with these great fantasies. But then in person, they're all very sort of formal. And so for the women to be like, ah, yes, it's so sexy if a man's earnest. And then if you're in the audience understanding the deeper joke, you're like, oh my God, these women are complete morons. But also they kind of don't need the men to actually be interested in them because they're so involved in their own fantasy lives. You know, like my favorite play, um, my favorite line in the play is when she says, you know, when Gwendolyn says, I always bring my diary with me. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like, she does not have a sensational life, right? Like she goes everywhere with her mother. She's part of high society, but clearly in her diary, what she's experiencing moment to moment is so much more interesting than that. These men are just like props basically to them to have these like intense mm-hmm. feelings about, but like, they're not going to consummate it. Mm-hmm. And if you are truly earnest, you know, in this way, then I think that suits you just fine. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, like there, it's like you, cause someone is like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to feel so deeply about you. Like, I think that there's a great move with Gwendolyn in this where she's just so horny and she's always like on a vibrating something. Like she's just like, <laughs> it's like, she like gets in the car and it's vibrating. She's like, Oh, Oh, and like goes along. She's getting a tattoo. Oh yeah, um, she is so thirsty. It also just like it, in, in a, on a level, if you want to take like a kind of purely second wave feminist analysis of it, right, and just think about the women in the story, there mm-hmm. is something interesting too about the intensity of their inner fantasy lives being a sort of I don't know, is it a sort of well of loneliness story? Mm-hmm. Are these women lesbians? You know what I mean? Like, there's a part of me that has this thought. Do you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> In the just a very intense relationship all of a sudden, which mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to go on stereotypes at least, <laughs> yeah, like they're like right? U-Haul and sister, I'm oh, a sister now. <laughs> and I'm like, they're Victorian U-Hauls. Yeah, no, there's definitely, everyone in this has like their own personal sexual fantasy life and no one around them has any involvement in it. But like yes. Jack and Algernon could be involved together. Mm-hmm. 
like yes. very plausibly is I guess what I'm saying and that's like oh, what I think I well yeah. and some productions like suggest that don't they I feel like I've seen productions that make the choice to kind of suggest that there's a little bit of like eyebrow eyebrow moment when they find out in the end that they are brothers because there's maybe been some Bunburying down in London in the Savoy yeah it's pretty rough because then it's like if you ask the question then like it's like the women are like in this like well of loneliness and like these two <laughs> Thank you. Men, I was proud of that reference. <laughs> it's like, why are they so invested in being married? Right. Which I just, mm-hmm. I think it's the sort of mm-hmm. question in production for Ernest that I always, I don't think it's why I'm so interested in why it's so, if it's gay or not. Cause I'm like, I need to understand what the stakes are for these dudes in marrying. And maybe it's cause I think these mm-hmm. women are attractive, but if it's also, if it's that and something else, or if it's something in lieu of that, it's like, it becomes kind of grim. It's like they're interested in like Algernon's interested in money. You know, he's interested in paying off his debts and he's going to use this woman as a tool to like accomplish this. Or they're interested in fulfilling these social roles that they've been assigned. Um, and in order, but like, so they're really, they're going to keep bunburying off themselves in their clubs or whatever in London town, merry old London. Um, but like, they're going to be married because people need of them to be married to a woman. Right. Um, so like, what is the well, urgency and... of this marriage if not their actual sexual mm-hmm. attraction? Well, and so that's why I posed well. the question at the beginning, why do people get married or why in stories do people get married, right? And because I think mm-hmm. here, everyone involved, it is because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. And they obviously are trying to find a version of that that they're happy with, but they all know that at a certain point, for financial reasons, in order to move out of your mother's house, in order to get people off your back, you know, whatever it is, they're going to need to find a partner. And... That is a very different uh, a way of viewing marriage than what we get in like a modern romantic comedy. There's a there's a quote that I love. I think this is in the, just the script as well, but I, I noticed it very very much in the movie uh, in this sort of confrontation where they're like, oh, they've been revealed to never neither of them is named Ernest, and the two women are like trying to figure out if they're going to forgive them or not. And then I think Gwendolyn says something where it's like in matters of great importance, you know. So what is it? Style, Style. Is more important than substance. Which one is like to the Oscar Wilde point is like the esthete like credo, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also is like this it's about the surface. And that I think is where the, the camp is, the engine of the camp of the things. That they're all about the surface of these things, the aesthetics of being married versus the sort of passions, mm-hmm. the cat either little R romantic or capital R sort of romantic uh investments and these overwhelming passions that move them through life. Yeah, no, that's definitely it's all about the aesthetics, right? And and the movie, one of the things I really like that they do is our introduction to the movie and to Algernon specifically is sort of following him through a night of debauchery and then being back at his, you know, his um, apartment in his flat in London. And he's playing some song on the piano and he starts to talk to his butler and, you know, about the song. And he says, oh, I don't play it with accuracy. Anyone can do that. But it's really more about the expression. Right. And like, that's the same thing as her style over sincerity line later. You, You understand very quickly that like, it's not necessarily about doing the the right thing but about appearing to do the right thing or appearing to do it well or appearing to do it with style um and that's what's important to all four of our leads more than mm-hmm. the actual substance well in, in honor of oscar wilde i'm gonna take several meta meta takes on that exact thing right where in terms of the queerness of the play like like jeff is saying like the engine of the camp like the style of the play not that what actually happens in this play as jeff was saying is a very well-made play plot structure right but it is the way in which it is done that makes it extremely campy and extremely queer right like it makes me think about oh god i'm about to make this reference i saw someone on tiktok say something that really made me think and i've read a lot of queer theory but this was like the most like perfect summation of it 
that I've actually ever heard. And the person was saying, listen, I identify as queer, um, not because I have sex with other men, but because I do it in the park. Because I'm part of a like... <laughs> Did you like that, Jeff? Um, <laughs> um, uh, because they were, uh, what they said was they were like, I, 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 I do it in the park and therefore I'm part of this sort of like genealogy of being outside of the, yeah. of like what culture tells me is the, the thing I'm supposed to mm. do. And I think that that is what Oscar Wilde does really well is that like he's making a well-made play, but the way he does it, the style and flourish of it, the, the language he uses and the little subtleties that he does as a piano player, if you want to keep using that metaphor, is really what sells it as an iconic piece of queer literature. And I love that. There's this um, sign, this famous sign in the Vondel Park in Amsterdam uh that it's like a super serious northern european sort of like sort of rule like follow this rule you're gonna die looking sign and it says like (laughs) it says like public sex outside of the designated cruising area is strictly prohibited in this park um which i think that oscar wilde would enjoy (laughs) he really would have i love that there's a designated cruising area although i'm sure there are some queer scholars who'd be very upset about that Oh, please. I'm sure there are. Yeah, uh, it's like, you are not allowed to be fucking anywhere in this park beyond the, stri- the strictly designated fucking area. <laughs> um, Wait, brilliant. designated fucking area is my new punk band. I'm, I'm establishing <laughs> that now. Yeah, I, would play, I would play bass in that band. It would be great. Yes, you um, would. It's a, it's a, uh, maybe we can tour with my band, The Fruiting Bodies, which I've always wanted. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a fungus and it's gay, too. <laughs> to give thanks to our patrons on Patreon and specifically our romantic leads who keep this show going. They are uh, Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. Honestly, so thankful for you. Um, Please don't change your names and move to the country because we need you. This movie was our Patreon pick of the month. If you want to help us pick a movie that we're going to talk about next month, you can go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys and for our as little as $1 a month, you can Help us to pick some movies and gain access to some cool behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, chat with us there. The importance of being earnest. Difficult to say whether we want antidotes or supplements for this one, but you know what? We're going to be beyond the binary. What are are our suggestions uh, this week? I I say I'll I'll pitch it over to Jeff first. Jeff, what would you suggest to complement Mr. Wilde's work? compliment is a great word here okay so i have two um one of which i'm embarrassed about and the other one i'm not so i'll leave it up to y'all to decide which is which um one is a play by mr tom stoppard from 1997 called the invention of love oh uh, if you yes it, it's a it's a beautiful play it's definitely like Maybe this is the one I'm embarrassed about. Um, it's about the life of this man named A. E. Houseman, uh, who is a Victorian classicist and poet. He wrote this a collection called A Shropshire Lad. Um, and he was also, he also had a long pining, uh, sort of gay yearning for his roommate uh, from college. Um, and the play is about him dying and then he's meditating on his life. And he's like getting into fights with like Ruskin and like Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde shows up in the play a lot. And um, it just is, it's very, it's a very gay 
with a capital G play in a way of not being queer, I might say. But mm-hmm. I love, love, love this play so much to me. I directed the scene from it when I was in college. I directed Seth and some other people in it. Um, oh my god! Yeah, I think he was houseman, and uh, I just love it a lot. And it came to me at a time when I was a closeted teenager uh, who was really into theater, <laughs> and. <laughs> Um, I, it's, it's definitely dense and there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of Victoriana going on in it. Um, but if you're into the period and wanting to learn more about Oscar Wilde and gay life during this time, I think this is a great play to explore. And it's also really beautiful. And I would, all, another supplement I might offer, which I hope I'm not stealing from anybody else, is the 2020 Emma that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are into surfaces and beautiful witty <laughs> wordplay... I think this is the movie for you. Uh, if you are into Anya Taylor-Joy, as we all should be, this is certainly <laughs> the movie for you. If you are into seeing Johnny Flynn's like perfectly formed ass in the mm. first 15 seconds of this movie, it is absolutely the movie for you. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, or if you're into Clueless, uh, certainly go for it. It's just It works on so many levels. It's a beautiful movie. The costumes are gorgeous. It's hilarious. And it's really well done. And again, if you're looking for a period sort of rapier wit wordplay kind of world, I you could do a lot worse than Emma 2020. Okay, Jeff, I am so mad right now because what? my antidote is also a Tom Stoppard play. <laughs> <laughs> which one? I which mean... one? Which one? Is it Coast of Utopia? Like that'd be a really that'd be a really fun antidote. Uh, no. <laughs> So this is, I was coming at this because I think we both, we both picked up on this that like, so I think a lot of the way that he um, writes his dialogue is really influenced by Oscar Wilde. I think he's got a lot of that like sharp wordplay. Um, And so I was thinking about that and I was thinking, what's something I love that has that same kind of thing? And I thought of, it's one of my favorite plays, the play Arcadia. I knew you were going to do Arcadia. From 1993, (laughs) which I also directed a few scenes of while we were at school (laughs) with a bunch of our friends. Um, and I was so excited when I got to do it because it had been one of my favorite plays that I'd like read in high school. And then when I had the opportunity to direct it in college, I was just like so excited to be able to share my joy at these scenes with a bunch of our friends, several of whom hadn't read it before. And then we're like instantly into it as soon as we did these scenes because um, it's it's so funny and it's so weird and it like deals with metaphysics and messing with time and all this kind of stuff. But it also deals a lot with sexuality and perceptions of sexuality Mm -hmm. and of sexual Mm -hmm. conduct and like it's got one of the main characters is a like a 12 year old girl and she's sort of aware of all of the various like sexual trysts that are happening in the house she lives in but doesn't really understand what's going on so there's a lot of discussion about like you know how you address those sort of no-no topics in a you know polite setting and all this kind of stuff and it's so funny and so smart and i was just thinking like if you like or ernest you'll love arcadia because they they've got very similar vibes i think it's not nearly as gay um but (laughs) but it's still really great janelle are you gonna say like um rosencrantz and guildenstern or something (laughs) i i almost made that just to make the joke complete oh god shakespeare love no shakespeare love isn't even nearly as gay as it should be anyway um uh, no, I, I actually was going to say that's a really good transition because if uh, Arcadia is not gay enough, I'm going to lean into some like extremely gay plays. Yay. Um, so let's do it. All right. So my first, uh, you know, complimentary piece that I want to offer is uh, 
a play that's actually sort of an adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest, but it's more like a riff off of it. It's called Handbag by the in-your-face British playwright Mark Ravenhill. Um, you, love in, you love that in-your-face. I know how you go. I know how you, you know do. You know how I do. <laughs> I love those in-your-face people. They are so scary, and I love them. Um, so yes, uh, as Jeff was alluding, I love the in-your-face playwrights because they are absolutely terrifying. Um, and they love violence and blood and sex and drugs and all that fun stuff that I love too. Uh, and handbag <laughs> is all of those things. It sort of takes the plot of uh, Ernest and instead of uh, having it be about, you know, two heterosexual men pursuing marriage, it's about two gay couples, one, two women, one, two men uh, deciding to have a child together and raise it. Um, and then uh, chaos ensues and it involves a handbag. But it's worth looking at, especially if you're sort of, if, if I'm starting to get you interested in the in-your-face theaters of the 1990s, um, then you should really check it out. But um, I also want to really recommend to more to the point, a play I saw a few years ago at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in DC that I found like so sexy and so romantic. And it's about art and queerness and just being hot and it's called Botticelli in the Fire by Jordan Tannenhill. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's about Botticelli's and his lovers and how they inspired him to make art and about how the Catholic Church tried to oppress him. So it's also sort of a, a another reference to the history of how Oscar Wilde was oppressed and ultimately sort of his wings were clipped. I mean, that's the best way to say it by the institutions that mm-hmm. in power. Um, but Botticelli in the fire allows Botticelli to be just like this sexy rock and roll badass, um, who transcends it all. Anyway, so those are my recommendations. Handbag by Mark Ravenhill and Botticelli in the fire by Jordan Tannehill. I, for one, have learned today the importance of being gay. And I feel really good about that. (laughs) Oh, man. I wish I could do a British accent. I'd have so much to say right now. (laughs) What would you say? Come on, Jeff. Give it a try. I'd be like, a handbag? handbag? (laughs) Gay? A handbag? Yes. You know what we didn't get into? We didn't talk about the act of killing Bunbury. We Which did we, should, we could have had an entire conversation about that, about the fact that once he gets married... We're killing Ernest, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, both of them. But the fact that, like, once we they get married, Ernest they the they end. kill off their, their bun-burying, you know, secondary characters. Like, what does that say? Yeah, I think that my feeling is always that I'm like, I believe that for about a hot second. But, like, we're <laughs> right. going to keep burying those buns. Like, oh, I just no, don't you think are. that you're going to stay away. These, these marriages are not going to be between two people who love each other deeply and spend all of their time together. These guys are going to keep fucking off to the city every other weekend. Like, no question in my mind. I just don't think the girls are going to care. They're going to be cottagecore lesbians and they're going to write, like, erotic fa- fairy tale fan fiction and it's going to be fabulous. One must always have something sensational to read on the train. Yeah, you bet. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time.